It's the middle of June in Alaska, and summer solstice, the longest day of the year, is just around the corner. This is a time for Alaskans to celebrate as the Arctic sun beams down in full force. Today I'm driving south along the Seward Highway, looking to get out of town to sneak in a quick overnight camping trip. 35 miles south of Anchorage, I pass the familiar turnoff to Girdwood, and I'm reminded of Aaron Gilbert when I see a sign announcing the upcoming Forest Fair. This year will be the 24th anniversary of Aaron's disappearance. But today I'm headed deeper into the mountains, where there's a cluster of Forest Service campgrounds that make a beautiful overnight getaway. Fifteen miles after Girdwood, I drive down the Portage Valley Road and check out the Black Bear and Willowak campgrounds. These are beautiful spots, nestled in a steep valley with hanging glaciers and towering rock walls looming above. But I decide to keep going, as I'm looking to get a little deeper into the wilderness tonight. Soon I'm gaining elevation as I head up into the scenic Turnigan Pass. During the winter, this is a haven for backcountry skiers and snow machiners. But in the summertime, the area is transformed into a lush alpine sanctuary, speckled with wildflowers, berries, and crystal clear alpine tarns and rivers. 20 minutes later, I finally pull into my destination for the evening, the Granite Creek Campground. This is a peaceful campground in the middle of Boreal Forest, surrounded by beautiful snow-capped peaks and bordered by the glacial-fed Six Mile Creek. Tonight, this will be my campsite, as I plan to have a campfire and be lulled to sleep by the rushing river. But as peaceful as it is out here, I'm aware that this is a wilderness that harbors a familiar mystery. On July 7, 2012, a 43-year-old woman named Valerie Sifsoff was camping at the Granite Creek Campground with her boyfriend. According to multiple news reports, around midnight, Sifsoff reportedly became upset about something and walked away from the campsite, leaving her keys, ID, cell phone, and other belongings. Her boyfriend reportedly stayed at the campground looking for her until around 12 p.m. the following day, but eventually he left for home without finding her. Unfortunately, and for reasons that are unknown, she wasn't reported missing until July 11th, three days later. Over the next few weeks, there were multiple searches in the area, including the use of helicopters and search dogs, but no sign of Sifsoff was found. But five months later, and with winter fast approaching, 
Sifsoff's family, who had continued searching over the summer with a multitude of volunteers, recovered two articles of clothing and log jams downstream on the Six Mile River, which were later confirmed through DNA technology to belong to Sifsoff. Although this gave the family a glimmer of hope, to this day, no additional signs of Sifsoff have been found. It's now late in the evening, and I'm lounging next to the Six Mile River, thinking about Valerie Sifsoff and what might have happened to her. I've heard that some folks speculate she might have been abducted. Others fear she might have fallen into the river or had an unfortunate accident in the woods. And regarding her boyfriend's story, well, it sounds suspicious at the very least. But as I start to become lost in thought, I can't help but be struck by the parallels shared with another mysterious case from this area, one that's consumed me for the last year. What happened to Erin Marie Gilbert? It's been 23 years since a young woman vanished while on a trip to Girdwood. You know, she was such a strong person. I'm sure she fought like crazy, and it really caught her off guard, whoever did this to her. If someone wants to disappear, they can do it. If someone wants to make someone disappear, they can do it. The main thing that made it stand out is she was with a man who seemed to not match up with her. We just don't know what happened to her. It's a, a number of scenarios could have transpired. You're listening to season one of Alaska Unsolved. It's now been almost exactly one year since I first started looking into Aaron Gilbert's disappearance. In that time, I did my best to collect the facts about Aaron's case and to talk with the people who might be able to shed light on who Aaron was and what happened to her. But there were still some loose ends for me to try and tie up. In early May, I contacted Dave Combs, the man who took Aaron to the forest fair on July 1st, 1995. I didn't get much further than introducing myself when he abruptly hung up on me. And when I called back, he assertively told me to never call him again before hanging up a second time. But I felt it was important to let Dave know that I was producing a podcast about Aaron's disappearance and that his account, which I think is extremely important, was missing from the story. So after conferring with some journalists I know, I sent Dave a letter letting him know about the podcast and asking him to reconsider speaking with me. But to this date, I haven't heard from him. What I've learned over the last year is that working on unsolved cases is daunting work, 
filled with ups and downs, where you're often left feeling demoralized rather than encouraged. These are the stories that don't often have a happy ending, or any ending at all. People are resistant to talking, and in my own first-hand experience of working on Aaron's story, there's a heavy weight that lingers in the air around my conversation with Aaron's family, the witnesses who spoke with her at the forest fair, and the people who were in Girdwood at the time of her disappearance. It's a silence that is deafening, a silence that you can feel rather than hear. But even as I tried to wrap up my work on Aaron's story, to put some closure on my own process of trying to learn what happened, there were still a few more people that I wanted to speak with. I lived in Girdwood from 90 to 2002, and I never once took the keys out of my ignition. I never locked the door of my house. This is Van Horn Ely, a longtime Girdwoodian, and a recognizable face around the forest fair, as he's been a volunteer at the event off and on for the last 25 years. I recently heard through a mutual acquaintance that Van was working at the forest fair back in 1995, and that he reported having a short interaction with Aaron. So I'm seeing this as another opportunity to hear an account and get some more perspective on what Girdwood and the Forest Fair was like back in 1995. People got roped into the Girdwood Forest Fair because the sanitation was a big job and people, they couldn't keep anybody, um, you know, interested in it for very long. And I'm careful about choosing terminology for the things that I do at Forest Fair, not because I don't want to take any thunder from anybody else, but because they might ask me to do it again. Right. <laughs> right. But seriously, you know, we wanted a place where people could go and, and disconnect from the, the ills of society. We wanted a place where people could have children um, as well as music in mm-hmm. the same environment. And oftentimes that is not the case. Van goes on to describe the forest fair back in 95, pretty much how I remember it. A family-friendly festival filled with good vibes and a community-driven volunteer spirit surrounding everything. Back in 1995, Van took on the monumental task of managing trash and sanitation at the festival, even dubbing himself with the environmentally friendly moniker of Captain Compost. It was during his rounds at the festival on Saturday, July 1st, 1995, that he believes he had a brief interaction with Aaron. I would almost definitively say that, that you know, I did see her. I spoke to her, and, and she was standing right next to me, and she was uh, tall and dressed differently than, than a lot of Alaskans might have been. I honestly took the impression that I still feel that I can, I think I remember feeling like, she must be visiting. She must be a visitor. And uh, I just remember seeing her, and she was very tall, well-kept hair. You know, when you live in a community like Girdwood, and people don't always spend a lot of time being put together. She was kind of put together, you know, and, and, and she seemed like she might have been a visitor by the way she was dressed. She wasn't in necessarily uh, crunchy hippie garb or outdoor regalia, something that was pragmatic over fashion. I just feel like she was somebody who was visiting and very, very pretty, dark-haired, tall woman who stood out. Mm -hmm. 
and it was a sunny day, and I think she was wearing a coat. It was a little bit warm for a coat. I think it was like a striped shirt, and uh, you know, I don't know if she was six feet tall, but she couldn't have been too too far from that. And um, I had seen her around, like I'd seen so many people that day, and, and I passing through and emptying garbage cans and, and answering questions. You know, I was just there and stood next to her at one point, and there she was, and I, and I think there was, you know, some sort of exchange of pleasantries, and, you know, like in the band, you're having a good time? Okay, cool, well, nice talking to you. And that was probably the extent of it. Right. You're saying that you first initially saw her, you thought it was maybe in the crowd, in front of the big stage, mm-hmm. right? That's the place where I feel like we we exchanged pleasantries. You know, we were both standing there watching the the band, and you sometimes just sort of, you know, engage in a few right. pleasantries. And I seem to remember, and and again, this is just an impression, but it felt like that the sun was coming over the. Uh, the mountains to the north, because Girdwood is a valley that kind of runs, I think it runs east-west. Yeah. The, the mountains to the north, the ridge there, um, when the sun starts to go down right. later in the afternoon, it, it goes away pretty quickly and it changes the temperature of, of things. So you kind of recognize when that's starting to happen, you want to get your sweater on because it cools down very quickly. I just remember, you know, sitting there and the, standing there, and then the sun seemed to be coming down across the top of uh, of the of the crowd and where we were standing, and um, you know, again these you know, couple of words, and that was that. Well, I don't know what time of day that would have been, yeah. but you know, I know the forest fair really well too. And when you're looking at the stage, you're facing west, and I, you know, you're looking at the Penguin Ridge off up to the right. That's right. So it would. It would, you know, if it was kind of coming down over there, it would be, you know, probably like eight or nine in early July. But I don't know for sure. I just yeah. remember that I was at the forest fair and I remember seeing this person. And it wasn't really until when I was told something in passing, I think it was maybe the next day about it, the description of the person, I think I might have seen her right. because of of her height and, you know, her, you know, I don't know if it was clothing or coloring or whatever, what it was. It sounds like somebody that I was talking to briefly. And then later in the week, you know, yeah, they still haven't found her, kind of. There's no word on that, you know. And then over the years, it's just, it's, it's stunning to me how not more of a big deal was made. I mean... Being a part of the committee, you know, we look at everybody that comes on onto our into our community as as guests, as friends, as you know, maybe extended family. So you don't want to think that somebody, you know, comes to your house and then leaves your house and then nobody sees them ever again. It just is a chilling, chilling. Thought and so you, I, I would love to be more useful in right. this whole situation, but it's been so long. Right. No, I, I I hear you, and I it's, you know, it's it's one of the reasons like why I decided to go down this road because it's, you know, I feel like a kindred spirit with Gerd. What I always have, it's like my kind of people are there, 
formative times in my life have been in Girdwood, whether it was doing outdoor stuff or music stuff or growing up skiing there. It's always just been a place that I've loved and everybody who lives there loves Girdwood, but I I'm with you. It's just like, as, as the story has popped up over the years, you know, I was just bit so intrigued. I mean, I don't really know because I can't look at the case file, which I know exists. You know, I've talked to law enforcement and, and I can only go on what they've told me that they, they did a very, very thorough investigation, but it, it's just a mystery. It, it's just a mystery. You know, and the thing about Girdwood back then, one of the other things I found interesting was a bit of like a Wild West town in that, that everybody did know one another and everybody knew, knew everyone's kids and everyone's dog. Oh yeah, there's, you know, Dow, that must be Van coming around the corner. Um, they also, there, there was instances where they ran people off. There were people who would, would come around and they were really obvious a couple of these guys were really obvious over the years and back then that, that these two guys I can only see one of their faces but he was you know a predecessor to the Alexander Tr- Supertramp kind of guy who was you know given up a life in the community and he was just kind of a not even a hobo but kind of a human tumbleweed who you could tell was just living pretty close to the land and didn't have much in the way of ties to any community. And right. and whenever they showed up, they were, you know, there was a lot of discomfort around them or they stirred things up. They didn't hold their booze well or whatever. And they were, they were run out of the bar or they, in one, one case, I heard this one guy, he got run out of town. He said, you know, please leave and don't come back here. Right. You're not really wanted and welcomed in this community because he had been so uh, difficult to to assimilate in polite society, as it were. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I don't remember if he had a name or whatever, but I can sort of remember his, his face and his way of dressing. Mm-hmm. And that's the kind of town that Girdwood was. So we really did look after one another and to have this be still out there and still lingering and still an unsolved thing and mm-hmm. to really to imagine that this person is not with us anymore is just it's chilling Talking with Van reminded me a lot of the other conversations I've had with the people who interacted with Aaron at the Forest Fair. It's a fleeting moment, like a brief, fading snapshot in time. In my mind, I picture Aaron smiling, almost in slow motion, as she drives south on the Seward Highway. I see her and Dave park and then walk into the Forest Fair. Aaron looks around in wonder as she's surrounded by kindred spirits in a new place, a magical forest wonderland. I see her talking with the vendors, excited about the prospect of getting a new piercing, just like any normal 24-year-old. I see her wander into the beer garden, laughing and socializing with new acquaintances and strangers around her. Later, I see her in front of the stage, swaying gently as the music fills her soul. And then I see the evening sun lighting up her face as it starts to dip below the mountain ridge. 
And then, like a vintage Polaroid photo developing in reverse, Aaron's face becomes blurry until the last visions of her, stuck in her youth at 24 years old, disappear. It's 5 p.m. on Saturday, July 6th, and I'm walking down one of the many paths of the forest fair, surrounded by a myriad of art vendors, food trucks, and music stages. 24 years ago, Aaron Gilbert would have arrived here in Girdwood at about the same time on the same day. I pause briefly in my chaotic surroundings and looking up at the sky, think quietly to myself. As I make my way to the main stage, I hear a familiar voice as Van starts to introduce the Denali Cooks, one of Alaska's most enduring bands who surely would have been playing here the weekend Aaron went missing. I don't know, Larry doesn't believe you. It's good! All right, ladies and gentlemen, put your hands together warm. Gerber Forest Fair, welcome to the Denali Cooks! As the band kicks into their first song, the atmosphere is electric, and people are making their way to the front of the stage to dance their troubles away. For a brief moment, I'm hit with a wave of sadness and nostalgia, thinking about my own youth, hanging out at the forest fair when I was 24 years old. I know there's still some work yet to be done on Aaron's story, but today I'm going to let myself go and let the music and the positive spirit that fills this annual festival in the woods take me away for a while. An angel came on winter's dawn You should have seen what she had on was If you or anyone you know has any information about the disappearance of Erin Marie Gilbert, contact the Alaska State Troopers at 907-269-5511. Alaska Unsolved is written and produced with original music by me, Evan Phillips, with additional music composition by James Glaves. The editing and post-production is by Pod Peak, providing creative audio solutions for podcasters, filmmakers, and brands, you can learn more about the work they do at podpeak.com. Hey, if you enjoy the show, please consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Don't forget to follow us on social media. And if you enjoy Alaska Unsolved, if you want to support the work we do from the ground up, you might consider becoming a monthly backer on Patreon. Just go to patreon.com slash Alaska Unsolved and you can sign up there. All right, friends. Well, thanks for listening today. Take care of yourselves 
and we'll see you next time on Alaska Unsolved.